Blog Talk Radio. by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace to You. 
If you've never contacted Grace to you, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true and lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's P-E-A-C-E at gty.org. Offer good in North America and Europe through June of 2017. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. As you know, we are looking at the book of Galatians, and I'm very, very thankful to be coming to this wonderful book. You can open your Bible to the book of Galatians, if you will. We're still just working our way through the introduction, the opening five verses. Uh, That's very important as Paul sets things uh, down as a foundation for what he has to say. But just um, a, a bigger picture for a moment might help you. The apostles and their associates were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the New Testament. In the upper room on that Thursday night, Jesus said to his disciples, the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to bring all things to your remembrance, and he's going to lead you into all truth. This was not just a general promise to all believers. This was a specific promise to the apostles and their associates that the Holy Spirit would superintend them recording the Gospels and writing down the New Testament. The promise of our Lord that the New Testament would be given to them by the Holy Spirit was affirmed by the apostles themselves. The Apostle Paul said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's all God-breathed. And uh, the Apostle Peter said that um, we do not follow human instruction, but holy men were moved by the Holy Spirit. And that is how the Scripture is recorded. The New Testament throughout claims to be the divine revelation, the word from God in every, every single word and therefore every thought. Paul wrote 13 of those New Testament books. The earliest of the New Testament books is the book of James, written by James. And that early book is a very foundational book. It talks about the fact that salvation must be manifest in a changed life. Faith without, what, works is dead. Wherever there is a real saving faith, it'll show up in a transformed life and manifest itself in righteous works. James establishes the fact that works is not the cause of justification. It is the fruit of justification. It is the evidence of it, but it is a necessary evidence and demonstration of a new creation. Very important to establish that at the very beginning of the New Testament of James is probably the earliest book written, written somewhere around maybe the year 48 or 49. We must understand that salvation will produce righteous works 
by the transformation of the life in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The second book written through the 27 books of the New Testament is the book of Galatians. And therefore, obviously, the first book written by Paul. What Galatians wants to tell us is this. Sort of the opposite of James. James wants us to know that where real salvation occurs, works will follow. Paul tells us in Galatians that works do not, do not provide any element of salvation. They are not the source. They are not the cause. Salvation is a work of grace alone through faith alone, apart from works. Galatians is the defense of the central New Testament doctrine of justification by faith alone. This defense of the true gospel was necessitated early in the New Testament era, early in the first century, probably written just around the time James was written, maybe 49 or 50 of that first century. And the reason it is written, because already there are people saying that salvation is by grace, but not grace alone. Justification is by faith, but not by faith alone. There must be works. And this comes early on. And there are false teachers taking this heretical teaching around to the newly founded churches. In fact, they dogged the steps of the Apostle Paul, and wherever he would plant churches, they would show up with their gospel of faith and works. So what you have in the book of Galatians is the earliest polemical defense of justification by faith alone, apart from works. This is what Paul had always taught. Now, Galatians is a very fast-paced, brief book, just six chapters. About five or six years later, after Galatians, Paul wrote Romans. And in writing Romans, Paul also defended the gospel of justification by grace through faith alone apart from works. So there are close parallels between the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. Galatians is the condensed form of it. And it comes out early before Paul goes through the lengthy treatments of these same issues in Romans. It comes out early because it is so necessary. The battle is on. The war has begun against the true gospel. In fact, in verse 6, Paul is shocked and says this, chapter 1, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not another gospel, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The battle was on from the very earliest time. There were false teachers who 
claimed to be believers in Christ. They came from Jerusalem. They were Jewish. They had come to accept, to one degree or another, that Jesus was the Messiah. They professed Christ. They professed to be Christians. And this gave them access to the church. And so they took their testimony concerning Christ and added to it the fact that if you were going to be saved, Christ you needed, but Christ was not all you needed. You also needed to be circumcised as prescribed in the Mosaic Law, and then you needed to continue to maintain the Mosaic ceremonies and rituals, the external elements of the law. They were called Judaizers. Now imagine this. They're dogging the steps of Paul in Gentile cities trying to impose Old Testament Jewish covenantal elements on Gentiles who know nothing about Judaism and know nothing about the Old Testament, telling them that they need to be circumcised as adults, and then they need to introduce into their lives all the ceremonies and rituals of the Old Covenant, or they cannot be saved. Paul launches into the polemic against the Judaizers in the book of Galatians and comes back around a few years later, as I said, in the book of Romans. Now, there was never a question about Paul's teaching. Uh, several passages are helpful to, to make sure we understand that. Turn to Romans 4, 5. I'm just going to give you some rather clear and condensed statements about this issue. Romans 4, 5, Paul writes this, But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is credited as righteousness. That is a monumental summary of the gospel. But to the one who does not work, there is no human work. There is no external action, whether it is circumcision or whether it is some ceremony or some ritual or some moral behavior, there is no work that contributes to salvation. Rather, salvation comes to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. The Judaizers assumed that God justified the godly so that if you were, quote-unquote, godly by following the prescription to be circumcised and following the prescription to carry out the ceremonies and the rituals and following some moral oughts from the Old Testament, if you qualified by your works, then the grace of God would be extended to you. That basically continues to exist today in false forms of Christianity, including Roman Catholicism. But Paul says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, an ungodly person by faith is credited by God as if he is completely righteous. That's the true gospel. That is the true gospel. 
Paul came to understand that gospel and saw any attack on that gospel, any effort to Judaize people, or for that matter, any other kind of work, but in particular, uh, for any effort to Judaize people and say, you have to be circumcised, you have to keep Mosaic ceremonies, you have to follow the Mosaic law. He saw any of that as an attack on the gospel and so stripping the gospel that one could not truly be saved by that false gospel. That's why in chapter 1, verse 6 to 9, he says, if anybody preaches that stuff, let him be damned. Anathema is the word that he uses. Let him be accursed. So Paul comes out fighting early on in the apostolic time of revelation in the book of Galatians. And to show you how he feels about these false teachers trying to Judaize the Gentiles, you need only look at Philippians chapter 3 for just a moment. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Always trying to protect, always trying to repeat what he said when he was in these places, founding these churches and stayed and taught them the true gospel. You remember how the story goes. As soon as he would leave, there would be some kind of disruption. He would write a letter back saying, let me tell you again in order to protect the truth, to safeguard the truth. Any faithful preacher, like any faithful apostle, is both a proclaimer of truth and a protector of truth. Uh, both one who uh, evangelizes and one who guards. We are going forward in an aggressive way on the offense to take the gospel to the world. At the same time, we are playing defense, earnestly contending for the faith delivered once for all to the saints. We are... We are both offensive in our proclamation and defensive in our guarding of the truth. So Paul wanted to guard the truth, and he did it by proclaiming the truth, and the Spirit of God used him to write the truth eventually in his 13 epistles. This is the truth, and it is clearly revealed there. He also did it by acknowledging the existence of false teachers and labeling them in such dramatic fashion that people would see how terrifying they were and how deadly their influence. And that's what he does in Philippians 3. Look at what he says, verse 2. Beware of the dogs. That's the worst thing you could say about somebody. That's, our world today is different. Dogs have been elevated in our world. <laughs> so ridiculous. They're the new children. But in the ancient world, if somebody called you a dog, that would be tantamount to somebody calling you a rat. Dogs were feral animals that ate in the garbage dumps of the ancient world. To call somebody a dog is the worst you could possibly call them. Who is he talking about? Well, he says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Who are you talking about? Beware of the false circumcision, the Judaizers who are going around telling you that Grace and faith is not enough. You need works. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the prescriptions of Mosaic ceremony. These are evil workers. Beware of them. For we as believers are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, 
and put no confidence in the flesh, in any fleshly act, any fleshly behavior. Paul says, I might have confidence. If anyone does, I might have confidence in the flesh. I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, the most fastidious attention was given to the law by Pharisees. As to zeal, how zealous was I for the law, I persecuted the church. As to the righteousness which is found in the law, I was found blameless. This is a legalist of the highest level. Those things were gained to me, of course, until I met Christ. And those things that I thought were gained to me, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. All that legalism, all that circumcision, ceremony, all of it is rubbish, garbage. I have been found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. There it is. Faith alone, not the law, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So he, he goes after the Judaizers, even in the epistle of the Philippians, which tends to be one of the most amiable of all his letters. This is a standard pattern for Paul in his defense of the true gospel to expose those teaching the false gospels. In Titus chapter 1, and this is the next to the last book in his life, he writes in verse 10, There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. They're in it for the money. And down in verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Detestable, disobedient, worthless are these rebellious, empty talkers, deceivers of the circumcision who must be silenced. Anybody who came along and added anything to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, was a threat. And so Paul's ministry, while on the one hand is teaching the gospel of Christ, on the other side is warning and assaulting false doctrine. He told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that for three years, night and day, he had warned them of false teaching false teachers that would rise up in their midst and others that would come from the outside. So Galatians is Paul's first book. It is also a polemic against false gospels that really is as severe as any book that he wrote because he has to attack error. He has to defend truth. Now, I hadn't really plan to say all that, so now let's look at Galatians chapter 1. But I did. Let's read the text. Paul, an apostle, 
not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. That is his introduction. And as I told you a couple of weeks ago, this is the only letter of the 13 that he wrote in which there is no commendation of the Galatians. I'm sure there were things that could have been said commendably about them. There must have been some faithful people. Paul always did that, but not here. And the reason is he is in one mad rush to attack this error. He goes right from that to verse 6. I am amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. It's not really another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He can't believe that having gone there, planted the church on his first missionary journey, gone back on his second, gone back on his third, that they have so easily shifted into listening to these false teachers. And the gospel is at stake. Look, if the gospel is at stake, salvation is at stake. Because apart from the true gospel, there's no true salvation. So naturally, the enemy, Satan, and his demons, and all his emissaries in human form will always assault the gospel. False gospels abound. They did then, they do now. They're all in one form or another a message that says your salvation in some ways depends on you. You have to do these works, go through these ceremonies, these rituals, these sacraments, join this church or that church, be a part of this organization or that cult or whatever it is. All of the false gospels import works. Now, what was going on in Galatia had a great effect on the people, a disastrous effect on them. In chapter 4 of Galatians, I just remind you of this, in verse 17, Paul says, they eagerly seek you. They want you. They want you for what? Not commendably, not for any good purpose, but they wish to shut you out, shut you out of the kingdom of heaven so that you will seek them. And they are, in verse 16, they are painting me, Paul says, as if I am your enemy and they are your friends. This is what false teachers do. In chapter 5, verse 10, he says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. And then this amazing statement in verse 12 I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. This, this is an unbelievable statement. Those who are telling you you need circumcision, I wish they'd castrate themselves. Fierce denunciation of false teachers. 
In chapter 6, verse 12, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. This will make them able to remain in their Jewish communities. And then secondly, in verse 12, they don't want to be persecuted by the Jews, so they add law to grace. Verse 13, they desire to have you circumcised so they may boast in your flesh. They want to count you as a convert, part of their success. So here come these Judaizers. They came from Jerusalem. They professed to believe in Christ. They professed to be Christians, to have some connection to the Jerusalem church. And they're coming into these churches that had been planted by Paul, churches full of Gentiles, and telling them they need to go through circumcision and to submit to Mosaic ceremonies. Paul knows this is deadly stuff because it corrupts the purity of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Now, in order for Paul to make a significant impact in his defense, he has to first defend his own authority, which he does in the opening two chapters. It takes two chapters to defend his own authority. Now, keep in mind, there's no New Testament yet. So there's no book that you can go to to measure the teachers. So if somebody's coming along and preaching and teaching, how do you know if it's true or not? If you don't have what we have in the New Testament, if you don't have the apostles' doctrine inspired and written down, then all you have is the apostles. Their, their authority is critical. So what, what the false teachers would do would be to first denounce the message and then denounce the apostle who was the authority. So Paul then has to defend the integrity, he has to defend the legitimacy of his apostleship. And that's what he does in the opening two chapters. Well, let's look then at the very beginning, those five verses. Paul wants to establish here just three things, his authority, his message, and his motive. His authority, his message, and his motive. His authority comes in verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. How does Paul defend his authority? Well, first he gives his name, just his name, and then immediately, his first defense is bound up in his title, Paul, an apostle. He doesn't define that. He doesn't defend that. He doesn't describe it because the churches knew what an apostle was, and they knew he was an apostle. Drop down to chapter 1, verse 14. Here's a little bit of his testimony. Verse 13 he says his former manner of life was in Judaism. He persecuted the church of God beyond measure, tried to destroy it. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral tradition. That, that's him, a Pharisee, and the most extreme level of attention to the law. But when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb 
and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I went to Arabia and returned after that to Damascus. Only three years later did I go to Jerusalem. Paul is an apostle, but he is not an apostle who received the revelation of the gospel secondhand from other apostles. No. He was chosen by God. He was called by God. He was justified and converted by God on the Damascus Road. And then he was taught by God in the desert the gospel through direct revelation. He is an apostle. They would call this into question as a way to discredit what he taught. What is an apostle? Well, what is an apostle? The word means a, a messenger. A, a messenger. It's simply a, a basic word that means a messenger. But Paul uses it often to identify himself because to the readers of the New Testament it had more meaning than just a lowercase messenger. He uses it in First and Second Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, here. The word essentially means an envoy. Uh, you could translate it delegate. You could translate it ambassador or messenger. A very familiar term, by the way, to the Jewish people as well as to the Gentiles. It referred to some special emissary who is sent out uh, from some monarch or some official government as a representative with legal authority to act on behalf of the king or on behalf of that government. We understand that in the world in which we live, that we have as a nation ambassadors who are sent around the world to be representatives of the American government, the American people, who are called upon to act in concert with those who commissioned them and declare to the nations where they now live the will and desire of America. That's what ambassadors and emissaries do. Jesus chose 12 such apostles, and only 12. They're listed in Matthew 10 by name. He called His disciples, Luke 6.13 says, and chose from them 12, and He named them apostles. He named them apostles. There were 12 of them who were apostles. And they operated with a delegated authority. For example, Peter in Acts chapter 3 heals the lame man. And what does he say? In the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, walk. It's not in his own name. He is a representative of the one who commissioned him and empowered him. There were 12 apostles. One committed suicide, an unbelieving apostate betrayer by the name of Judas, his place was taken by a man named Matthias, and the record of that is in Acts 1, and then there are 12 again, and then there was one later added, and namely that is the Apostle Paul. He was not worthy to be an apostle because he was a blasphemer. He received his apostleship. He said, by grace I am what I am, but I am no lesser apostle. I am not in any sense less less than the rest of the apostles in commission and authority and revelation. Unworthy, yes, because he was a persecutor. But he was a true apostle. 
there are only 12. There's no such thing as apostolic succession. There were only 12 apostles chosen personally by Jesus Christ, having to see Him alive after His resurrection. Now, people question Paul about that, but he saw Him alive after the resurrection on the Damascus Road. The, the testimony that an apostle would give was firsthand eyewitness. Listen to John give his testimony as an apostle. What was from the beginning? He's referring to Christ. What we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at, touched with our hands concerning the Word of life, and the life was manifested, and we've seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. That's an apostle, seen and heard, experienced the living Christ, been with Christ, seen Him risen from the dead. That's an apostle. There were 12 minus 1 plus Matthias and then Paul. They are the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of the apostles is clearly indicated there. The mystery, the mysteries of the New Testament, the mystery of the church comes through the holy apostles. There is no such thing as apostolic succession. The New Testament is the apostles' doctrine written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.42, the early church studied the apostles' doctrine. The last time the apostles ever met together is recorded in the 15th chapter of Acts, the Jerusalem Council. After that, they disappear from the written historical record. They're gone with the exception of Paul, who makes it all the way to the end of the book of Acts. Leadership then is turned over to evangelists and teaching pastors and some preachers in the church. There were only 12 plus one apostles. You would think today if you listen to the charismatic movement, that there were hundreds of apostles running around the, the world, if not thousands of apostles. People take the title apostle. There were only 12. Maybe they're messengers in, in that sense, but to take that word is to confound the uniqueness of the apostolic calling that our Lord gave to just 13 men through whom He and with their companions wrote down the New Testament. They would have understood that in Galatia because Paul would have made that known to them. He didn't have to defend it. He just needed to say, I am an apostle. I am an apostle. And my apostleship does not come from men or through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. So he moves from his title in defending his um, legitimacy from his title to his commission. He accredits himself by the fact that he was chosen, not from men, not through men, but from God through Christ, who raised Christ, God who raised Christ from the dead. Obviously, the false teachers were saying he has no authority, he's not legitimate. Don't believe his message because he's not a real apostle. That is just not true. The, the uh, circumcision people 
dogged his steps so much that they became a movement on their own. Chapter 2, verse 12 calls them the party of the circumcision. They were like a religious party. Paul takes them on head on because they were not only attacking his message, but attacking his authority. My authority does not come from men, does not come through the agency of man. It comes through Jesus Christ. You say, well, is Jesus Christ valid? Is Jesus Christ a true representative of God? Can Jesus Christ, does he have the authority? Does he have the the power to appoint apostles? The answer is, of course he does, because God, the Father, raised him from the dead. And in God raising Christ, God is affirming Christ. He is declaring Him to be His Son and Lord. The resurrection are God's credentials on Christ. The call to apostleship are Christ's credentials on the apostle. And by the way, the resurrection was God's validation of Christ But there's something more there that I would just point out to you in in the scheme of this book, and it is this. The resurrection of Christ from the dead was the inauguration of the new age, the inauguration of the new covenant. The old ended with the final sacrifice, and the temple curtain was ripped from top to bottom, and that system was gone. There was no more priesthood. There were no more sacrifices. All Mosaic ritual was gone. No more Sabbaths, no more feast days, no more holy days, all gone. Even the last Passover in the upper room, Jesus turned into a communion service. The old age ends at the cross. The new age begins at the resurrection. And one of the things that you must understand is you don't go back to the old age after the resurrection. Why would you bring up circumcision? Why would you bring up ceremonies and rituals and feast days and Sabbaths, which are, as Paul says to the Colossians, a shadow of things to come, but Christ is the reality. We don't need any of those things. That is why you don't want to drag baptism in as some necessary rite to make salvation possible, as many do today. The new covenant is grace and faith. And when the apostles began to preach after the resurrection, go through the book of Acts. I was going to do that. don't have time. You can can see preaching in Acts 2, preaching in Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 10, on into Acts 13, on into Acts 17, They're preaching the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection, the the new age has come. And they're preaching that in the new age, God saves sinners, ungodly people, purely on the basis of faith. Christ is the Son of God. How do we know that? Because God raised Him from the dead. That was an indication that God was satisfied with His sacrifice. He accomplished the redemption of His people And that is the message we preach. The resurrection signals the beginning of the new age. Why would you go back to the old? So Paul is an apostle with a commission that has come to him from Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. You can read about it in Acts 9. The history is there. 
He has a commission from Jesus Christ. And if you question Christ, then go back one and say, this is the true head of the church. He is the Lord of lords because the Father declared him such by raising him from the dead. So his authority comes from his title as an apostle and from his commission from the risen Christ. Thirdly, his authority comes from his association. And this is important. Verse 2, all and all the brethren who are with me. Very important to note this. He doesn't say, and all the other apostles who are with me. He knows better than that. All the other preachers with him, whether Barnabas or whoever else, they were brothers. He's an apostle. They are brothers. That is a term of distinction. Paul, when referring to them, usually names them in his other letters. Here he doesn't name them. He just calls them brother. In many of his letters he says he gives you names of some of the brothers that are with him. He's an apostle and certain brothers are with him. Barnabas or Silas or Timothy or Titus or whoever. He's happy for the association with other preaching brothers. But they're not apostles. And oh, by the way, this indicates to us that the gospel is not idiosyncratic. It's not Paul and Paul alone. There are many other brothers who are preaching this same message. It's not something that he invented that no one else has heard. They preached the very same gospel. And their gospel didn't include circumcision. And their gospel didn't include works except as a result, but certainly not as a cause of salvation. He's an apostle. They are brothers. He's not standing alone against the heresies in Galatia or anywhere else. Other brothers stand with him on the true gospel. And for this, he is sending this letter to the churches of Galatia. That tells you there were many churches in Galatia. Galatia is not a town. It's a region. It's a region maybe 175 miles by 250 miles that would be today in southern Turkey. Galatia comes from the ancient term Gaul. Have you ever heard of the Gallic Wars, Caesar Gallic Wars when you're in college? The Gauls are sometimes called the Celts or the Celts were tribes of people that used to harass Rome 300 years before Christ. And they fought on uh, three, 400 years before Christ. They fought constant battles against the Romans. Uh, they even joined in the 3rd century, they joined Hannibal uh, to come down and try to destroy Roman power. They plundered Rome. They plundered Greece. But eventually, they finally were defeated by the Romans, and the Romans were generous enough to let them exist. 200 years before Christ, they settled down into southern Asia Minor, which is now part of Turkey. Paul had gone there on his first journey, second and third missionary journey, planted these churches in Derby, Iconian, Lystra, and Antioch. And these were people who should have never questioned the gospel or his authority. But these are the subtleties of false teachers. They had come in and wreaked havoc with the truth and with, with his authority. And so here comes his answer to these churches. So that's the statement on his authority. Now let's look at verses 3 and 4 just quickly because we'll see more of this later. He defends his office based on his 
authority and based on His message. Verses 3 and 4, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins, so that He might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Here's a familiar salutation from which we drew the name of our radio ministry, Grace to You, obviously. Uh, uses it in Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, and here. Again, there's no commendation, but there is a statement of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace need to be understood this way. Grace is the, basically, grace is the source of salvation. Peace is the result of it. Grace is the source of salvation. Peace is the result of it. Let me say it another way. Grace is the sum of all blessings bestowed by God. Peace is the enjoyment of all blessings experienced by the believer. Okay? Grace is the sum of all blessings provided by God. Peace is the enjoyment of all blessings provided by God and experienced by the believer. We are saved by grace into peace. We have a peace that passes understanding. We have peace with God. We don't fear death. We don't fear what the world brings. We have no fear of the enemy. We have no fear of Satan. We have no fear of demons. We have, we have no fear of whatever happens in life because we are at peace with God. Our eternity is settled and we're eager to be in His presence. That is the profound peace that grace brings. So this is the best of all possible greetings Grace to you and peace. And notice it's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Both. And further, in verse 4, here's where the grace comes from and the peace. Because the Lord Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now, just a couple of things to think about. Here is the nature of Christ's death. What happened when He died? Did He die the death of a martyr? Did He die the death of a, of a well-intentioned religious leader who suffered the, the bad ending to an otherwise noble life? Is this the death of a hero? No. He is saying, clearly, Paul is, that He gave Himself for our sins. In other words, He offered Himself as a sacrifice for sin. That's what he anticipated in the garden. That's what the Lord knew was coming. Paul says that's exactly what happened. The death of Christ is not some kind of uh, act of love and leave it at that. It is not the death of a hero. It is an actual sacrifice for sin. He is the one Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Sacrifice for sin. Circumcision adds nothing. Ceremony adds nothing. Ritual adds nothing. Morality adds nothing. In the 20th verse of the second chapter, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's what happens. Christ dies, and by a divine miracle, we die in Him. Our sins are paid for. Then He comes to live in us. Circumcision has nothing to do with that. Baptism has nothing to do with that. 
Christ's death is a sin offering to God, a ransom paid to God to rescue sinners and to provide the forgiveness of their sins. It is a full atonement. That's the nature of the sacrifice. The effect of it is to rescue us from this present evil age. Please mark this. It's not a potential rescue. It's an actual one. He gave Himself for our sins so that He might reconcile or might rescue us from this present evil age. That's what He did. When He died, He actually delivered or rescued exiro, is the same word used in the Septuagint for the exodus from Egypt. He rescued us from this present evil age. Another way to say it I read in Colossians 1. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. The domain of darkness, this present evil age, the same thing, the realm over which Satan rules. The gospel is a rescue, and the death of Christ provided the rescue. It is an actual atoning sacrifice for the sins of God's people that rescues them from the domain of darkness, from this present evil age. It's a rescue operation. What was behind this? What caused it? Back to verse 4. According to the will of our God and Father. God willed the death of Christ. It was by, Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the determinate plan and will of God. He repeats the same thing in Acts chapter 4. God willed to send His Son to be an actual atoning sacrifice for sinners so that they would be rescued from this present evil age. That's the gospel. It is by the will of God, all planned by God and executed by Christ. There is no room in this for circumcision, for ritual of any kind. The message is again the clear gospel. Through the death of Christ, the people of God are rescued from this present evil age, which of course is coming to a horrible end, this according to the will of our God and Father. So the authority, he defends the message, he declares, and finally the motive. Verse 5, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. All of this to the glory of God. Put works in, put any physical action in, any accomplishment, any achievement, any morality, any ritual, any ceremony, any sacrament. And God does not get all the glory. All the glory, all the glory belongs to Him. It is His work and His alone. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, verse 29 says, No man may boast before God. By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the issue at stake. To Him be the glory forever and ever. And this is repeated throughout Paul's letters. He says it in Ephesians. He says it in Philippians. He says it in 2 Timothy. 
says it here. By insisting on human works, by insisting on circumcision, human effort of any kind, they were degrading what God had done in Christ. It was incomplete. But by denouncing that, Paul is pointing to the absolute all-sufficiency of Christ and His perfect work and therefore magnifying God and giving Him all glory. A rich benediction comes to us out of this passage. Did you notice? At every stage in what Paul has said, the Father and the Son are together. The sin-bearing of Jesus was both an act of self-sacrifice and an act of the will of God the Father. The authority of Paul as an apostle was through God the Father and Jesus Christ. The grace and peace which we receive are from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Together they planned it. Together they provided it. Together they announced it. Together they bestow it. That's why our Lord says in John 5.23, he that honors not the Son honors not the Father who sent Him. Don't tamper with the gospel. That's Paul's heart cry. Father, we again thank You that we've been able to gather this morning under heaven and hear from heaven. We have truly heard from heaven. We have heard you speak. What we have sung, what we have prayed, what we have read, what we have taught, all comes from heaven. It's all heaven's truth. We, we have experienced heaven coming down. You have spoken. What a powerful, blessed, amazing experience this is. And you have granted us more wisdom, more understanding, more knowledge of yourself by which we can render you more glory and more gratitude. Lord, I pray that you would be gracious to sinners here for whom your Son died. And draw them to Yourself now. Any who have rejected Christ, rejected the Gospel, are still in this present evil age, still bound in the kingdom of darkness. Lord, would You release them today to the light of Christ. That's our prayer. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website, gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Oh, Father, who art
for Father's Day. So, once again, happy Father's Day, everybody. And now I'm going to do a song, Walk with God, also by Go Fish, here on Trippy Toll Radio.
When was the Ice Age? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker and blogger on the Bible's reliability and authority. Around the globe there's evidence that ice sheets once covered 30% of Earth's surface. The idea of an icy world with mammoths and saber-toothed tigers fascinates people. But how does it all connect to biblical history? Well, those who believe in an old Earth say there were many ice ages, but they don't have an actual mechanism that can cause one ice age, let alone dozens. With the Bible's history, though, the ice age makes sense. The global flood of Noah and its aftermath would have radically changed the climate. And after the flood, there would have been warm oceans and cool summers. These conditions were perfect for tons of snow to accumulate. And the result? An ice age. Want to discover more about the Ice Age? Visit our information-packed website to find answers to your questions about mammoths, glaciers, ice cores, and more at AnswersRadio.com. Bye. 
The Flood and the Ice Age. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to God's Word and a new Reformation. There was only one ice age, and it came after Noah's flood. You see, the breakup of the fountains of the deep, as described in Genesis, would have caused massive volcanic activity. Now, underwater volcanoes would have warmed the oceans from pole to pole. Warmer oceans mean lots of evaporation. Now, follow this. To cause an ice age, this evaporation had to come back down as snow. All the volcanic activity would fill the atmosphere with ash and small particles. These would reflect some of the sunlight back into space, cooling the Earth. Warm oceans, cool air, results in lots of snow that won't melt during the cool summers and ice age. To learn more about the flood and its aftermath, visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll learn more about how the Bible's history explains the world at AnswersRadio.com.
Man and the Ice Age. This is Ken Ham, President of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. The Ice Age, which came after Noah's flood, provided the ideal conditions for mankind to spread around the Earth. You see, the cooler global temperatures would have allowed people to pass through and even live in places like the Sahara Desert. The Ice Age would have also lowered ocean levels, exposing land bridges. The bridges would have permitted people and animals to easily travel to places like North America. And those who settled north were hardest hit. Crops would have been hard to grow in the cool climate, so they would have relied on big game and they would have used the most practical shelter available, caves. Cavemen were not primitive brutes. They were our relatives dispersing around the earth during the Ice Age. Discover more about the Ice Age when you visit our excellent website at AnswersRadio.com. You can also learn about the Ice Age exhibit in our full-size arc at AnswersRadio.com.
go fish singing that that's fruit of the spirit and you can find them at gofishguys.com g-o-f-i-s-h-g-u-i-s dot c-o-m gofishguys.com this is me most control here on trippy toll radio and i'll play another one from gofishers of glory here on trippy toll radio age and ice cores. This is Ken Ham and we're on a mission to help ignite a new reformation about God's Word. 
secular scientists tell us that the ice cores show tens of thousands of years, but they assume millions of years, as well as a belief that present-day slow, gradual processes produce the ice layers. The ice cores need to be interpreted, and our starting point determines how we interpret the evidence. When we start with the Bible's history, we interpret ice cores completely differently. The Bible tells us there was a global flood a few thousand years ago. The flood would have produced an ice age. This ice age was responsible for laying a large part of today's ice cores and in a short period of time. So Bill Nye, the science guy, is wrong. The ice cores are just thousands of years old. Want to know more about how your starting point determines your interpretation of evidence? Visit our Bible Upholding website to learn more about the true history of the world at AnswersRadio.com. should not perish but have eternal life for God did not send John 3 16 through 18 says for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God condemn means to sentence as guilty, and that's not what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and save the lost, to destroy the work of the devil, to give his life as a ransom for many. When he comes again, it will be to judge the living and the dead. Whoever did not worship him as Lord will be consigned to hell, a sentence that is on them even now. See, Jesus did not need to come and condemn the world because we're already self-condemned. Whoever does not believe in the Son of God has condemned themselves. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Not that God puts his wrath on him, it remains on him. We are all by our nature deserving of wrath because we have wicked hearts dead set against God. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his Son Jesus, who took the wrath of God on the cross. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whoever believes in him is not condemned by God or anyone, but is loved. They are forgiven their sins and have eternal life when we understand the text. That is when we understand the text of Noah's Word, uh, WWTT, and you can find them at www.tt.com, www.tt.com, or also on YouTube, their channel called WWTT. And thanks for listening to me, Melissa Cantrell, here on Truth Be Told Radio. What I'm going to do for you next, this is from Wretched, and it says, do not tithe here on Truffitori. I give 10%. Hold the phone, Henrietta. Are you certain that you're supposed to be giving 10%? Hey, the Old Testament talks about the tithe. Actually, it doesn't. The Old Testament talks about the tithe. There are multiple It's that Hebrew kind of gets all spitty. There are multiple tithes in the Old Testament totaling, give or take, at least 23 to 28%. So if we want to apply an Old Testament, Old Covenant law for that people at that time, then we better up the ante from 10 to at least 23%. But I don't think that is what God desires in either the Old Testament or the New Testament, when you take a look at the tithes, the poor tithe, the festival tithe, 
the operating of the temple tithe, which totaled 23, maybe 28 percent. Your money that you were giving were basically your taxes for the operation of the system, for the government, for the nation. That is what the Old Testament tithes was. Think Old Testament tithes, and I think it's safe to say, just think, well, those are basically the taxes. But what about giving? How much were we supposed to give in the Old Testament? And the answer in the Old is the same as in the New, as much as you want to. Give from the heart. Not from compulsion, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Give what you desire. Giving has never been an accounting issue. It has always been a heart issue. God knows your finances, and God knows what you can give, which is why you should have a budget so that you can ponder, how much can I give and how much do I want to give? Richard, the answer to your specific question is, it's up to you. But just remember that if you think H&R Block knows your tax numbers, God knows them even better. He knows how many pennies are coming in, how many are going out, and to what God they are doing. He wants you to give to him, not an idol, but to him as much as you desire. Do you see once again that God isn't just interested in formulas then that God isn't just interested in, okay, just live like this, act like this, talk like this, and you'll be pleasing to me. No, no, no. He wants complete heart transformation. Now, that is what giving is about. But you're saying, wait a second. I thought there was a subtext of the church to these church questions. Alas, there is. To whom should you give your first fruits? I would suggest the local church. That, 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 that's where your first money should go. And the number is going to be different. The percentage is different for everyone because of means, what God has provided, the circumstances that you are in, upcoming expenses. All of those things need to be wrestled with. But I do believe that God wants you to give your first offerings to the local church. And should you have more, then you can give it to parachurch ministries. Now, look, I'm not going to mention any names in particular, but you could, you know, there's some ministries that you could be supporting outside of your church, but do not give to any of them, including us, until you have done business with your local church. One last note, if you don't mind me saying so, there are some churches that teach you give as much as you can. That's where Richard's question of sacrificial giving, I think, where that comes from. Give more than you can. Just throw it out there in faith and give more than you got. And you watch God do great things. Not sure that's a promise in the Bible, nor am I convinced that is good stewardship. I think we take a look at our numbers. We remember how much God has done for us. We give what we desire, but not more than what we have. That's actually bad stewardship. Going into debt is not godly, even when it is because you are giving to the local church. God doesn't want you in debt. He wants you to get out of debt, and I would even go so far to say that until you get out of debt, you should not be giving because you are not giving your money away. You're giving a credit card or a bank's money away. Give what you can. And 
when you do that, then I believe no quid pro quo, give me this percentage and God will give you that, give more money and sow a seed and then God will give you a harvest. But when you, from your heart, give to God what you have, what you want, you watch God bless that. Cue the MIDI, please. We are in the middle of our Rescue the Perishing campaign, inviting you to join us in seeking and saving that which is lost. Perhaps this hymn, Hark the Voice of Jesus Crying, perhaps points at you. Verse 3, if you cannot be a watchman, standing high on Zion's wall, pointing out the path to heaven, offering peace and life to all. Does that sound like you? You can't go. You maybe aren't ready yet to start witnessing one-on-one to people. What can you do to rescue the perishing? Um, With your prayers and with your bounties, that's old hymnal language for money. With your prayers and with your bounties, you can do what God demands You can be like faithful Aaron, holding up the prophet's hands. Will you join us and help us rescue the perishing? Seeing this from Richard, uh, find them at www.wretched.tv. And uh, the last one I talk about rescue the perishing, it's uh, wretched.tv. Forward slash rescue. That's their their page for that. Once again, it's wretched.tv forward slash rescue. R E S C U E. And just me, most can't here on Truthy Tall Radio. What I'm gonna do for you next is I'm gonna play one from Answers and Genesis here. Truth be told, radio. Wonderful worms. This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing the truth of God's Word. In the soil beneath our feet live millions of tiny earthworms. Now the worms help make plant life possible. The average acre of soil contains over 3 million earthworms. Earthworms swallow huge amounts of soil and digest nutrients from it. This process helps to oxygenate, fertilize and loosen up the soil for plants. Their waste helps to transport minerals and nutrients for plants. It also helps to decompose litter like fallen leaves in the fall. Earthworms will drag around 90% of these leaves into the soil so the nutrients can be reused. Indeed, in the earthworm, God has provided the earth with an efficient system of enriching the soil. Discover more about God's incredible design in nature when you visit AnswersRadio.com. There's so much more that proclaims the Creator's glory. Go to AnswersRadio.com. The Christian faith is about morality. It is about rules. There are laws, but that is not the preeminent feature. All of those laws should drive us to a place where down so that we realize we have no hope in and of ourselves so that we look up and we see Jesus dying on a cross for us. And, wow, I'm a total lawbreaker. He's a complete law keeper. I want him 
not the muck and mire that I'm living in. You see, the Christian faith ultimately is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. I mean, it's all throughout the Bible, but it's really condensed in those first three chapters. It talks about the purpose of the world, that God is pointing toward the cross so that he can be seen for the amazing God that he is. That is the Christian faith. But our bent is to incline ourselves more to keeping rules and force others, cause others, encourage others to simply see the Christian faith as rule-keeping. How can you know if you have been guilty of doing that with a loved one or counselee? Pastor Brad Bigney encourages us to give somebody homework that is really quite crucial when it comes to biblical counseling. It's not spending an hour like the secularists, and how do you feel about that? And how do you feel about that, Larry? That's not what biblical counseling is about. We listen, we help, we disciple, but we also give homework, and that is another way to determine if we, in our counseling, are creating a Pharisee. Point it out wherever you see your counselee. Because we give homework, right? So you're giving homework. There's an occasion for homework to become nothing more than a system, and they're going to perform for you. And they're going to have it done to a T. They're going to have the homework done. They're going to have the verse memorized. They're going to stick the landing with the reference and everything. But you could have yourself a little Pharisee sitting there. There's still the heart hasn't changed. And you can have somebody else that comes with the verse half you know, stumbles through the verse. Not all the homework is done. So be careful. Don't just celebrate and delight in every counselee that gets all the homework done to a T. You could have someone that is performing for you and wants you to think well of them. And that's the best way to do that because they, they know you want them to do this homework. Done. But you want to see brokenness. You want to see dependence. That is what biblical counseling drives toward. Not simply, I didn't say there is none, but not simply doing, but we want to see people realize how broken they are, how helpless they are, to understand what Jesus meant when he said, without me you can do nothing. That is where we want people to go and not to get on the road of plate spinning. First Timothy 4, 7 says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So there's a place for discipline. We got far too many undisciplined Christians and they're in a mess. So there's a place for that. But it can go too far where the disciplines are treated like a merit system and the more I can do all these things consistently, it's almost like all these spiritual disciplines are plates that you're spinning. Now I got Bible reading going, got some scripture memory going, got prayer, but now I heard Brad talk about fasting. Oh my word, I got to fast. I'm going to fast and have days of fasting on the calendar. Oh, solitude. I better do solitude. Oh, someone's talking about journaling. Journaling. And you're just running around like this, and you've lost sight of all of this. The spiritual disciplines are a means of grace to bring you into a relationship with a living Savior. There is a plate, however, that Pastor Bigney did not mention, and it is the worst plate of all that we can spin. I'm talking about the plate of the gospel. You say, wait a second, I, I, I thought plate spinning was, was doing stuff. It was about laws and legalism. It wasn't about grace. If we're not careful, we'll turn this presentation from Brad Bigney into yet another plate. It looks a little something, my hand, like this. 
Okay, okay, okay. I've got to think gospel. I've got to think, I've got to think more gospel. I better think about the gospel. I've got to take some time off of work so I can think about the gospel so that I can become more gospel-centered because I've got to do the gospel more. Do you see what we can do with grace? Be careful. You don't start spinning that plate. It is very easy to think, yes, this makes sense. We need to be driving people to the cross. And so I need to be thinking more about the cross in order to get other people to the cross. And while that is a very good objective, that's not why we go to the cross. We go to the cross because that's where our Savior bled and died for us so that we can love him more, not simply become a better parent or a better biblical counselor. How can you make sure that you don't turn the gospel into a plate that you simply spin? It is to appropriate the gospel. It is to soak in the gospel yourself. In other words, when the plane is going down, you don't put the oxygen mask on everybody else to save them. You put it on yourself first. You and I must appreciate not turn it into a system, appreciate what God has done for us through Jesus, then we counsel people, then we disciple people, and then and only then will we do it rightly. Uh, If you do not know how to help somebody who is struggling with emotional issues due to infertility, sexual abuse, miscarriage, self-harm, you will, if you get tried by biblical counseling, too. That was from Wretched, their YouTube page, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, Wretched, and find them at Wretched.tv, their website, Wretched.tv. And here's the meme list controller here on Tribute Total Radio. Find us at truthbetoldradio.com, truthbetoldradio.com, T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-H-E, excuse me, sorry, radio. T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O, truthbetoldradio.com. Let's see. Next, what I got for you is a song from Go Fish. This one is called Gotta Move. You gotta move. So lift your hands up high and jump with me
people every single day Do we think about talking to them when we walk away? What will they think? Will they make fun? Where will they go in the time on earth is done? We gotta be the salt, we gotta be the light We gotta get a left or we gotta get a right Trying to be sensitive has gotta send a mess Put on your armor and take one in the chest If you want a bad
Okay, that's about it for the show. Except for Red Lot with Yancy and Friends with the VIBLE. Bye for now. The B- Yeah.